Welcome to the Seven Hills Church Podcast with Marcus Mika. We're excited you're here listening as Pastor Marcus is about to bring an incredible teaching that is sure to inspire, motivate, and lift you up. You can visit us on our website at sevenhillschurch.tv or download our free Seven Hills Church app to watch or listen to more exclusive content. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed the message. Isaiah chapter 58 and uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, Isaiah 58 and 1 Kings 19, just we're going to look at both of them. And I want to talk to you about fasting for a changed life. Of course, Isaiah 58 is the fasting chapter. If 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, if Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter, then Isaiah 58 is the faith chapter. And I encourage you to read this anytime you're trying to find purpose in the fast, this is a great a great chapter to read. It says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did not that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have you fasted, they say, And you have not seen. Why have you afflicted your souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you will find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate. What he's basically starting to say here is you're fasting, but when it comes to how you treat people, that's not changed. When it comes to how you talk about people that's not changed you're fasting but you're still doing the same things that really don't reflect a changed life the reason you're fasting hasn't crossed over into your daily life your attitudes how you handle yourself how you relate to people is still it's still lacking is what he's saying but you think you think that The fasting is making up for the fact that you're strifeful and even goes to the extreme. Look at this, that that you're striking with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Let's look at verse 5 and 6 and we'll talk about it. Is it a fast that I have chosen? This is a question God's asking. So considering that that premise, that they're fasting, they're doing the religious stuff, they're not eating, they're praying, I guess, they have a religious look about them, but when you look at their life, it's still strife-filled, there's still anger, there's still violence. The two are not lining up, and God asked the question, or the prophet here asked this question on behalf of God, is this the kind of fast that I've chosen? Is this really what we're after? To just have a religious side of this, but it doesn't change our life? It doesn't change who we are? Is that really what this is about? And of course, it goes on to say that it doesn't matter how spiritual you are. Verse 6, is this not the fast I've chosen? This is what the kind of fast that God's chosen. To loose the bonds of wickedness. 
to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Now, we would know a few things. We would know a yoke, for example, um, is an instrument that they wrap around the, the neck of an oxen. And the goal of this farming instrument is to control the head movement of the ox. So once the yoke is working properly, the oxen can't move its head to the left or to the right. It can't move its head up. It can only look down. And the Bible here says, one of the reasons that you fast is that the yoke those areas that the enemy has found a way to control your head, your mind, your sight, your direction. And he does this through all kinds of ways. He, does, he brings all kinds of negative forces into our life. This is attitudes, our affections, our conversations, our thinking, our emotions, our relationships. We could go on and on, but the enemy has a way. And the Bible says, I want you to get a picture of a yoke. I want you to get a picture of an oxen, this strong, full of potential, full of possibility, this, this great animal of strength, but yet when the yoke is on it, its head's down, its head's controlled, its eyes are focused down, its direction is being, I want you to think about that. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to know that this is the same way Satan influences you. He'll do whatever he can to control your sight, to control your mind, and control your direction. The Bible says this is one of the reasons we fast. One of the reasons we fast is to break those yokes, break those mindsets, break those attitudes, break those habits, break anything that the enemy has used to negatively control our life. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to look at the prophet Elijah real quick. And I want you, as we look at the prophet Elijah, to keep in mind that image of the yoke and the oxen being controlled. Verse eight, so he arose and ate and drank and went in to str- in the strength of the food that he had had for 40 days and 40 nights. Translation, he eats a meal that lasts him for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah is fasting, no food for 40 days and 40 nights. How many of y'all know that's a real fast? That's not no social media. That's not Daniel fasting. Elijah would laugh at us. I'm not eating chocolate for the month. No food for 40 days and 40 nights. That's big time. That's big time. I, I, I don't even have that. I don't even, I've never, I did 21 days. I, do, you, do I look spiritual? You know, but uh, 40 days he's fasting. Let's keep reading. And he ends up as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? Why are you in this place? Why are you in this cave? Why are you, why are you here? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. I'm all alone. Nobody's with me. 
They're trying to take my life. And then he said, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind hit and tore the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after that wind, an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, you could just preach right there. After the fire, a still, small voice. Now, Elijah is one of the greatest prophets in the scripture. He prays and it rains. He prays, fire falls from heaven. He prays and nature, the course of nature is changed. He prays, he's in a situation where he challenges one man against 450 prophets of Baal and as an individual, he defeats 450 men. I think we could conclude that Elijah is a bad, bad, bad man, right? You don't mess with Elijah. Elijah prays and what he prays for, it happens. Elijah tells God to do something and God does it. God tells Elijah to do something and Elijah does it. Elijah is a bad, bad man. Bad meaning incredibly strong, godly, a man you shouldn't take lightly. He gets a letter from a woman by the name of Jezebel, and in the letter there's a threat. And the threat says this, by tomorrow at this time, I'm going to kill you. And suddenly this extremely successful, powerful prophet is under tremendous, tremendous pressure. He's facing the battle what it appears to be the battle of his life. Everywhere he looks, he sees posters with his face on it that says, wanted, dead, or alive. And the same man who experienced this great high point on Mount Carmel is now experiencing a very low, sad, devastating place because of Jezebel. This man of great courage is running fearful. He's scared, he's afraid, he's running for his very life. He's believing that there's no one that he can talk to, no one that he can turn to. In his mind, no one can relate to what he is going through and discouragement and depression and darkness grabs a hold of him to the point that he's contemplating suicide, praying, begging God, begging God, would you please take my life? I don't wanna live, I don't wanna keep doing this, I don't want to keep going through all of these things. And this is one of Satan's greatest weapons, how he gets that yoke on us. He gets that control around our necks, controlling where we look, looking down, looking, can't look up, can't look this way, can't find options, can't, can't, just, just looking down. That yoke is through fear and discouragement. The enemy is so good at controlling us through fear and discouragement. And it's important to see that even someone like Elijah, who had great victories, who had these incredible accomplishments, is in a very, very low place. I think it's important to think about that because how Satan works on us is he convinces us that when we fail and when we're, we're 
in a bad place, a negative place that no one can possibly understand. And it makes that thing is unique to us. That sin is unique to you or that that emotion that's got you down and in a dark place that it's unique to you. And he does this by exaggerating that issue in your life. He, I mean, he blows it out of proportion. I mean, think about it. You can go to Noah who built an ark, saved his family, probably could say his faith is unparalleled. He gets to the end of saving his family. He drinks too much wine and he gets drunk. He's not a perfect man. You could go to Abraham who is the father of our faith and yet he is lying in a situation where his wife ends up almost going to bed with another man because he says that she is not his wife, but she's his sister. One moment, a man of faith. Moses declared the meekest man that's ever lived gets out of control with anger and kills an Egyptian. The apostle Simon Peter says, I'll never deny you. No matter what, you can count on me, Jesus. I'm with you. I got you. Nothing will ever cause me to turn my back on you. And three times by the next day, Elijah is in crisis and he doesn't stand. He's not courageous. He's he's not facing the threat. He's doing the opposite. He's tucking tail and he's running away. And I love this because it teaches us that we're all working through our own contradictions. We're all working through hypocrisies. We're all working through areas of our life that don't line up with what we believe. We're fasting. We believe one thing, but our life looks like another thing. Why? A yoke. The enemy has a way of even though we have all this strength, all this power, all this potential, we can't realize it because of the yokes around our lives. Isaiah 58 is teaching us that's what happens. That's how we miss it. We just get focused on the spiritual side of it and we don't fast to make sure it changes our life. This is the kind of fast that he has chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to break the yokes. This is the kind of fast. This is what we fast for. We don't fast to look religious. We don't fast to look spiritual. We fast so it will actually break off those negative forces from our life, our hearts, our relationships, our church, our children, our marriages. We fast for a changed life. I'm glad to see this moment here where God sends the angel to Elijah, which lets us know that as God's people, we'll work, we'll serve, we'll labor, we'll sacrifice, and sometimes we'll be tired. Sometimes we'll be discouraged, and sometimes we won't want to keep going. And God doesn't just look at us and give up on us and throw us, kick us to the curb. He does the opposite. God knows how to send us exactly what we need to minister to us, no matter what state we are in. So Elijah goes on this 40-day fast. He's still dealing with the same issue. He's still dealing with the same problem. He's not over it. He's still running. He's still hiding in this cave. And these are the words. This is the question that God gives him. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing in this place? Similar question to what was asked in Isaiah 58. Is this really... Why we fast? Is this really what it's about? Is this 
Is this really what God's, has he not called us to something more? What are you doing here? I think that's a question all of us should maybe seek to answer during this fast. What are you doing here? I'm not talking about in this room. I'm talking about your current spiritual condition. I'm talking about the current condition of your marriage. The current condition of any area of your life you want to grab a hold of. What I did is, is on New Year's Day, I went out and I didn't write seven different things I was fasting for. I wrote down the seven areas of my life. I wrote down every area, my health, all those areas. And instead of just saying, this is what I want to accomplish, I took some time and said, why are you here in this area of your life? Why are you here? Not just, God, I want all these great things to happen, but why are some things in my life still not the way that I believe God wants them to be? And instead of just saying, God, I want you to do great things, I took some time and said, God, I, I need you to break some yokes off of my life. I need you to break some negative things. And some of them are just in my mind. Some of them, they're just not even really working. You couldn't grab a hold of it. No one's going to know it. Nobody's going to be able to, to find it. It's just, sometimes it's just on the inside. The yokes get a, a hold of you. And, and you know God's maybe calling you one way, but you just can't get that way. You just seem so stuck and controlled in your direction. What are you doing here? Admit that sometimes it's your fault that you're in a low point. We hate this. We want to say that everything is Jezebel's fault. She wrote the letter. She said this. She threatened me. She put up the posters. She sent people against me. She put a reward on my head. That's why I'm in this cave. That's why I'm depressed. If she wouldn't have done that, I would still be calling down fire, killing people for God or whatever he was doing. Who knows? Old Testament crazy stuff. But my point is this. Sometimes we make the poor choices. I'm not saying it's your fault completely where you're at, but sometimes it's what happened to you that maybe wasn't, and then you react a particular way that sometimes keeps you in that yoked place longer than maybe what God had initially planned. And fasting does that for us. That's why we fast. We fast to confront those yokes. We fast to confront those areas the enemy has a hold on our life. Elijah is still depressed. He's still sad. He's still in the cave. He's still depressed. Nothing has changed. He's crying himself to sleep every night, but he's fasting. He's fasting. He's seeking God in the middle of all that. Now watch this. This is crazy. This is where me and God, we do things different. He's fasting 40 days, no food. God finally talks to him. And you know what God's instruction is? Go outside of the cave. And he goes outside of the cave and a tornado comes by. And the Bible says the mountain is splitting in two. Rocks are falling all around Elijah about to kill him. And then the earthquake hits and then fire shows up. This is my point. Can you see how this works? He's sad, he's alone, he's devastated, he's heartbroken, he's running for his life, he's praying for God to kill him, 
And it's almost like God was going to kill him. Remember Jesus, I think it's Matthew 14, and the disciples, they, they're going across the lake and the storm hits. They almost die. They finally get across dry land. They're kissing the ground. And then two demon-possessed guys run out and try to attack them. I can remember, I don't remember what year it was now. I think it was around 2007, 2008. And the church... Everybody's leaving. You know, we've been through more what they call church splits than, you know, several. I mean, several. I mean, several just, just, I could, I can point to churches that open and closed. Churches all just came out. Just, and you say, well, are you against that? No, but when you got several hundred or a couple million dollar mortgage that you take over, run down building, a staff that you inherited, you got to pay and everybody's leaving. Nobody's saying, hey, I'm going to make sure I finish my tithe out for six months, young preacher. No, none of that's happening. None of it's happening. I can handle that. But then Sarah and I, we hate each other now. We can't stand each other. We're probably not going to make it. And I'm saying, God, kill me. This is true. I don't mean to depress you, but I would drive by graveyards and I would be envious. Because they didn't have to feel anymore. And I know what Elijah was praying. God, would you just take my life? Just take me out of this? I, I don't want to keep doing this anymore. I, I'm, I'm done. Then I break my leg. I went to the gym to try to work off steam by punching people. I thought I was an MMA fighter, more like an idiot. And I broke my leg. I had to get surgery, seven screws and a rod put in my leg, pain pills to make it. I know what Elijah's talking about here. He's in the cave. He don't feel like nobody understands. He don't feel like he can turn to anybody. And, and let me just help you. When you do what I do and you, all those bad things happen, even your preacher friends don't want anything to do with you because they're afraid it might be contagious. <laughs> like, call me when you're winning again. God bless you. I'm over here. I know what it's like to be in the cave. You feel like God's calling you out of the cave and you try to come out a little bit. And then it's like, my God, he is, I think he really wants to kill me. I think he really wants to take me out. But I love the part of the verse where it says, after the fire. There was that still, small voice. After the fire. God whispers to him. It wasn't a scream. It wasn't loud. But there was a whisper. I said, Elijah, man, it's over. You made it. It's done. You got through it. It was dark. It was dangerous. It was, it was discouraging. It was, it was depressing. But you made it. 
And not only did the gentle whisper bring him out, but we can track that it impacted three generations later. Which is if we would have kept reading, it says that in Isaiah 58 verse 12, that actually fasting impacts generations. I can remember my great-grandma, and some of you have heard this story before. I'll tell it 15,000 more times if God will let me. My great-grandmother had been diagnosed with tuberculosis, which means back then it meant you had a couple days to get your affairs in order, and they're, they're going to ship you off. They're going to quarantine you. You're going to go hang out and die with other people that have the same disease. And she had just had her first baby, my grandmother's older brother. And she was a Christian. She was a believer. She was, I mean, not just kind of in name. She was the real deal. I mean, this woman, when we went there, when we went, Sarah and I, when she told us this story, because I had never heard it, when she, when she told us this story, she was so old. My great-grandfather had been dead. She, I don't know, how old was she? She's in her 90s. I mean, she was way up. I mean, she was up there. And... She had just woken up from a nap and she told us that when she went to bed, she needed the curtains hung and there was nobody to hang the curtains up. And so she said, the Bible says that God would be the husband to the widow. And so she prayed before she went to bed. She says, God, I need the curtains hung. You said that you would be the husband to the widow. I'm going to go take a nap. And when I get up, I expect the curtains to be hung. And she says, they're hung. That's the kind of woman she was. Like, she was that kind of a woman. I mean, she believed. But she, she goes out in her front yard, and she is praying. She says, God, I just had my first baby. I, I don't want to die. I don't, I don't want this to be over. And she asked God to heal her. And she says, immediately, her whole body got warm, and she knew that God had healed her. God told her, you're healed. And she went to the doctor, again, small town, small community, knocked on the door of the doctor's house. And he came to the door and she's saying, I need you to check me out again. Go through the process. With, I need you. I'm healed. I don't have you. And he's like, I'm sorry. I, I, there's nothing we can do. It's over. You're sick. You have it. You know, and he, she's. And so because of, out of their relationship, the doctor checks her back out. And sure enough, God had completely healed her of tuberculosis. I don't know why God always does what he does or doesn't do sometimes what he does. But what I know is that here we are, generations later, still being impacted. Was she going through some stuff? Absolutely. But God was faithful through that whisper. You see, the devil understands that he can only push you so far. That the yoke can only be so strong that if you'll fast and if you'll pray, the Bible says the anointing of God will break every yoke of bondage. There is no negative controlling force on your mind, on your heart, on your relationships that the anointing or the power of the Holy Spirit cannot completely break off of your life. And the way this story ends is beautiful. It ends with us hearing that Elijah goes to Mount Carmel. I'm sorry, Mount Horeb. 
which means range. And on that same mountain, the peak of that mountain is Sinai. So Elijah goes to the same place that Moses saw the finger of God write the Ten Commandments. Which means somehow Elijah knew that you don't just visit any place. You actually go to places there's been previous spiritual victories. This week I read online, are the, the Goldicks here? Are, are you here? You're, you're here, but are your parents here? They make it tonight? I guess this week somebody didn't have their key, couldn't unlock this building and the old building. There's different keys. And so they went to the old building for prayer this week. And evidently it was like the most powerful prayer time since there's been prayer times ever or something like that. And the, the Goldicks put on their Facebook post, they start talking about the reason it was so powerful for them is because five years they walked into this church. They weren't believers. They weren't saved. They got saved here. They got baptized here. Their lives were changed. Their families are changed. You just saw their daughter raise her hand and her new husband sitting right beside her, who I'm guessing you guys met here, right? And all of that happened. And so they go back into that old space. And I think one of the reasons it was so powerful is because there are so many more spiritual victories there that had accumulated. It's not that that space is any more anointed than this space. It just has more victories because it was used longer. And when you go visit those places, build your faith again. Every time I go to liberal Kansas, little town I grew up in, every time, I go visit the little church, Faith Tabernacle, on Main Street, where I heard the gospel for the very first time. And if the door was open, I go in, and I stand in that little room. The, the very first time I heard that God loved me, that God loves people. And then he went to great extremes to show that love and to get that love to us. Every time I go visit, why do I go visit? Because I didn't know John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come to the world to condemn the world, but through him we might be saved. I never even heard that verse. I'd never heard of David and Goliath. Never even heard of it. Somehow God's done all that he's done. But you know, to this day, I have times in my life where I doubt that God can still use me, that, that I'm capable of doing the things that I'm doing. I'm not being humble. I'm being transparent as much as I can still to this day. I wonder, surely this week, everybody's going to kind of know. I don't really know what I'm doing that much. And surely, you know, God's going to find somebody else that's better. And still to this day, but I'll go back to those places. I'm like, my God, I mean, surely if he took me from that place. And then I, when I go to Michigan, sometimes I'll go sit down on the stage in the church where I youth pastor for the very first time after being kicked out of Bible college. <laughs> Luke's laughing. You should have been kicked out. You left before they got to you. <laughs> Don't let him fool you. He's, he's, he's got a good thing going over there. That voice, that voice covers a multitude of sins. And I can remember my very first night youth pastoring, and I can remember 14 young people lined up around the stage. 
I had so many board meetings that I went to where nobody on the board thought I should do this. None of them thought my father-in-law, he probably was throwing me a bone because I was marrying his daughter. I wasn't getting paid, none of that kind of stuff. I was just hanging out with 14 kids, 15 teenagers. And I can remember, and I go sit down on that stage and I remember There's so many times the yokes were there. There's so many times. But God's been faithful to break them. God can break every 